Hello, state-of-the-art listeners. I'm so excited to be guest hosting today's podcast. We had an awesome, inspiring, fun time with my good friend and artist, Jessica Ciel, discussing her time in graduate school at Cranbrook Art Academy and how it has informed her practice now as a working artist in Sacramento. Today, we're speaking with an artist named Layla Weefor, whose discussion of Black identity is at the center of her work and who is helping to build collectives and spaces in the Bay Area. She's an Oakland native, artist, teacher, writer, and curator, all the things. Today, we're going to talk about the complexities of Black identity, how it is defined, for whom, and by whom. We will also get into the double-edged sword that is Black History Month, which we're obviously in right now, uh, and discuss Layla's upcoming solo show, Between Beauty and Horror, at the Aggregate Space Gallery in San Francisco. So please help me in welcoming Layla. So Layla, I wanted to kind of jump right into this conversation that began uh, when we had our kind of pre-interview conversation um, about this idea of Black History Month and how it seems like that's the time when a lot of Black people, you know, artists and otherwise are asked to engage or asked to kind of take up space or, you know, be given an opportunity in an institution that ordinarily does not feature black voices uh, and how that can kind of rub people the wrong way. This is a conversation that we had internally before we decided on this topic, because the first thing I thought was like, Oh, it's February. It's black history month. It's the black people month. Like I don't want artists to be offended that we're asking them. But at the same time, I weighed that against like, I really want to feature if I'm the one in control kind of running this conversation these are the people whose voices I want to elevate. So at the same time, I'm kind of like, it's worth the, it's worth the risk. Uh, and that was my internal calculus as a black person, as a black creator who has felt similarly um, kind of like relegated to certain spaces during certain times. So I just wanted to kind of hear about your experience with that and your reaction to even this opportunity. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question uh, and something to have to negotiate as a black creative. Uh, I've recently been been asked by a few different companies to either do a presentation or come and speak or do an interview because it's Black History Month. And I always want to have an issue with it, you know? I always want to find some reason to be a contrarian to the idea of Black History Month. But there is a part of me, and maybe it's like, the Baratunde Thurston part of me (laughs) (laughs) that is like, you know, if we can capitalize on this moment, there's no other time of the year for us to do so. Although that's becoming less and less true. Um, And just to be extremely controversial, we all know there is no white history month and every uh, white folks capitalize on their whiteness every day of the year. And so if this is the time where white people are forced to negotiate and put capital behind blackness and they are forced to, then I'm not against it. I just wish it would happen more frequently and not always have to be named Black History Month or Black something. Yeah. And I also feel a little bit. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm becoming a little bit exhausted by how frequent how frequently the the term or just the word black is used sometimes i mean i love that it's used exhaustively black by black people when they're trying to drive a point 
But just naming something black because it involves a black body is something that I'm feeling fatigued about. Yeah, and it can be so problematic. Exactly. There's so many collectives, or including my own, with the name Black in it. Uh, there are so many organizations uh, and projects and artworks that feel obligated to insert the word Black in its title. Well, this is a question I had that um, I was going to ask later, but I'll ask it now. I mean, it seems like, it, you know, you touch upon uh, this work in your upcoming show about kind of black identity being something that almost is imposed or where you're made aware of your identity as a black person and, and sometimes before you even kind of from within claim that identity. And so kind of like, and then oftentimes like you're made aware in a really traumatizing othering way too. And so instead of being this source of pride and comfort, it ends up being something that can produce anxiety or feelings of isolation. Like how do you address that in your work and kind of what is your reaction to that? Like this idea that other people tell you you're black. It's not only black people using that kind of phrase to identify themselves. When you say other people, what do you mean? Non-blacks. So, I mean, for I mean, I'm at a point in my life where I'm less concerned with how non-blacks are labeling me. Um, I, I don't want to focus my energy on how non-blacks are positioning black folks in time and space. I'm at this point in my career and more, much more concerned with how black people are positioning each other. Mm. And in time and space and how they're, how black people are imposing blackness on themselves and their communities, their immediate community. What are some, what are some ways you see that happening in, in the Bay where you work? And is that, a, is, that a, is, that a, I, is that a position that's also being, is that more widespread than just you? Like most people are just like, I'm sick of having to worry about what, non-black people have to say about me i'm just going to focus my energy more inward and supporting my community is that something that you see spreading beyond you and and how well okay so it's interesting i i both support and challenge my community because i feel like the best way to support your community is by challenging them Mm -hmm. um i don't know i don't always buy into this idea of blind support so just because someone is black doesn't automatically buy my and I know that that can be a little bit troubling, especially when we have this, we have to have this united front, or at least that's how it's been historically represented, is that Black folks have to have this united front without questioning each other. And then there's always some internal struggle that happens, inevitably. And what I want to, what I'm interested in, like, investigating or teasing out is why we all feel forced to play this role and to play this role within this idea of imposed blackness and why we can't have support of each other because of what we do or what we believe in and not because we are black. Because that often, that model doesn't always work. Yeah, and we're not a monolith either, like any other people. I mean, there's going to be... We are a monolith. Yeah. You said we are? I said we're not. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so I think that expecting everyone to agree because of the color of their skin is is not only 
inaccurate. It's just, it kind of suppresses meaningful conversations and exchanges. Um, and also exactly. this blind support of things that are black can lead to, uh, and you know, we can get into this if you want, like the support of Bill Cosby, the support of R. Kelly, like this idea that we have to protect black people at any cost, even though that cost is the harm of black people. You mm-hmm. know, and so I think it's that that's like, how are we harming each other? Right. Um, and I think that like the idea that we can't disagree or the idea that we can't hold one another accountable because of these really unfair systems that persecute us, like doesn't mm-hmm. help us often. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I think that that's, that's really interesting. And so in terms of how you've seen that, in Oakland, like this is a place that used to be synonymous with blackness and kind of a, I mean, always it had its problems, but this is a place where black people went to thrive. Um, and that's eroded over time. How are people responding to that erosion and how are people kind of in the face of that connecting and providing spaces and partnerships for people? Well, I think something that I've noticed um, with what you call the erosion of the black community is there's been um, an increased response to that erosion by collectivized work and organizing. Uh, So a lot of, a lot of young black folks are because the black community is dwindling are being forced to find communities and build communities like these, even sub communities of creative spaces or intellectual spaces to support each other um, because it's really, it's becoming increasingly difficult to sustain a practice, whatever that practice may be in a city that doesn't support you financially. Right. So we, we've, we've been tasked with finding ways to support each other, whether that means like uh, creating a collective that, you know, shows artwork in whatever space and like finding ways to find funding, um, or, you know, political organizing, you know, we still have, this is still like home to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I think the spirit of the Black Panther movement is still very vibrant here. And I think that that's something that folks really try to preserve, especially in their collectivized work. Um, I think people aren't quite it's, it's, it's it's funny because the position that a lot of black folks are in, and I can only really speak to the black creative community because that's the community that I'm in every day. Um, I think people don't quite know how to survive or how to sustain themselves and are negotiating these things on a daily basis. Like how, how do I support my blackness in a city that doesn't really care about blackness? Like how, how can I archive, the a history that I'm actively building right now. Um, how can I be in conversation with someone uh, about my blackness without being, you know, without being tokenized? Um, yeah, I think we're still really figuring it out. And I think, I don't really think that there's a clean answer for your question, even though I wish there was. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think we're kind of innovating, uh, as we go, you know, because of that, because of the lack of clarity there. And I think that 
you're really smart and observant to notice that these coalitions and kind of collectivized creative forces are a it's it's i think a useful tool to kind of hear and work with other people uh and yeah. kind of refine your own ideas as part of a kind of safe space of people who are invested in your success but also critical of your ideas when need be mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And so, you know, that kind of brings me to this collective that you are a part of called the Black Aesthetic, uh, which I believe is based in the Bay Area. What uh, kind of what how did that come to be and what is its purpose? <laughs> um, so the Black Aesthetic started in a bookstore. Uh, me and two other gentlemen kind of found each other because we were we were kind of floating, right? Uh, there was this time, there was this time for me after graduate school, I went to, um, art school at North College, which is in Oakland. It's a women's college, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was the only black student in my cohort. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's not surprising at all. You can hear that same testimony from tons of art students all over the country. Right. Um, but having that lack of community, I found myself in, in these like really neutral spaces where, I could happen upon someone and meet someone that way. And that's what happened with the black aesthetic. So I met these two guys um, and we found a similar love for movies and we didn't really have, we didn't really want to make it into an organization per se. We kind of just wanted to build space for our, us and our friends to sit and watch movies in the dark and have a really intense discussion afterwards. Um, because we were kind of missing that, that like critical discourse that you, you often get when you're in a, in a graduate program, when you're, when you're in critique, uh, when you're, you know, gathered with other critical thinkers or creative thinkers and they're all, we're all like kind of interrogating the thing and whoever's work is being presented. And that's something that we wanted to do with each other without having the pressures of, you know, a career or, you know, it was just kind of for fun. It was for sport to watch a movie and talk about it. Yeah. And to form that community, I think that it's interesting that, you know, out of necessity, you know, we end up building these spaces on our own that end up being better than perhaps had they been more integrated into the programs that we're a part of. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have is Does the collective do any work in terms of bridge building with, groups outside of the black community or is it really just to create that safe space for us to kind of discuss ideas that you know you would only really have if you've had a experience as a black person well i think like anything it 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 has transformed itself over time you know i think it's it's changed shape the organization uh it started off as a really small like punk like fringe thing where people gathered in this like really scrappy bookstore and no one really cared about how the projection looked or how the, how it sounded. We just, we just cared about whatever image was being shown at the moment. And then inevitably grew, right? The more people come, the more, you know, we have to find a bigger space. We have to start paying people, which we absolutely wanted to do we realized at one point, like, oh, if we're going to be asking filmmakers to show their work, we can't ask them to show it for free. 
Mm-hmm. So we we started to build this ecosystem that supported our community financially, um, whether it was, you know, through the residency money that we got through the bookstore, Wolfman, which is Wolfman Books, or I haven't named Wolfman Books is amazing. It's on 13th Street in Oakland, downtown Oakland. Um, so they at one point gave us like seed money so that we could pay folks. Um, then with that ecosystem, we had to find houses, like a, a larger house for the black aesthetic. And we could, obviously we couldn't buy space. And that was a really like scary reality. We couldn't have our own space to host this, right? So we had to reach out to all of these inner spaces. And a lot of the times we found that we couldn't find any black owned spaces. Mm-hmm. We wanted that to be important to the work that we did in some way. But it was almost impossible. So we found Spirit House Gallery and Betty Ono Gallery, which are two galleries in Oakland. They also do, you know, public programming and events. But then we wanted to reach people, the, like the black community on the other part, in the other parts of the Bay Area, like San Francisco. You know, they don't have an equivalent organization that's doing the same work that we're doing in San Francisco. So we had to extend our reach. And by doing that, that also inevitably means we have to partner with white spaces. Uh And so what, what I started to do was integrate this sort of this rhetoric or this, you know, this speech that we did at the beginning of each program, basically saying, I recognize, we recognize that we are in a non-black space and we recognize that this can easily tokenize all of us. And we also know the position that we are putting ourselves in by benefiting these organizations by our presence so that they can then benefit in their grant writing process and they can narrativize our presence in, in their organizational history. So we, we, we wanted to state that very clearly that we were aware of our positions in that space or in any of those spaces so that the audience knew that we were accountable to them and to the filmmakers. I think that uh, I think that's amazing. I think that that, that transparency uh, and accountability is really important, um, especially given that like the reaction from the space itself might be mixed about that statement. Mm-hmm. Like, did you have any spaces that reacted um, who thought that was a controversial statement to make? No. That's I mean, good. maybe they did, but no one, no one, no one said anything to us about it. Because that's think... sort of how I mean. That's how I treat any any part of my practice. Anytime an organization asks me, whether it's me as an individual artist, or me with the Black Aesthetic, or me with whatever other organization I'm representing, I have to let them know that I know how I'm being used, and that I am, it, I'm consenting to that. To the ways that they're using my blackness for their benefit. Well, I guess it's a mutual exchange at that point. I think that maybe as, exactly. lo- as long as you realize how you're benefiting and how they're benefiting and that seems equitable, uh, then that's okay. I think that when it's when it veers into exploitation, which I think is how sometimes you might feel when, you know, going back to our original question about Black History Month, when, you know, you're get you're maybe even being diminished in order to benefit an institution, that's when it's too problematic, I think. But where do you draw the line? I, think I don't it's know. It's a really fine line. 
I guess it depends on what you want to get out of it. You know, really like how much can they offer? I mean, a lot of times like the pay will be worth the kind of exchange happening or the amount of people you might be able to reach as a result of that platform. Or maybe it even just offers like an opportunity to criticize this institution. You know, like sometimes I can imagine, and this is really, this is a really hairy gray area is when, you know, you accept an invitation knowing that this is an institution you don't support in order to make a point about this institution. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's something that you have to kind of play case by case because um, you don't want to feel like you're misleading people, you know? Um, but at the same time, like, I don't know. I think that like we've all, all in, order, <laughs> in order for us to get to these kind of rarefied spaces, we've had to navigate these questions like, on a very frequent basis. And so I think yeah. that is, you have to define for yourself, I suppose, like, you know, what's the, I mean, for instance, I went to Yale for undergrad and I was in Calhoun. Calhoun has since been mm-hmm. renamed uh, Hopper College because obviously John C. Calhoun was the most pro-slavery senator in the U.S. Senate history, you know? And like, maybe there's some people who are like, I don't want to sleep in a residential college that's named after a giant racist. But then I'm like, well, where at Yale is not named that, you know, like where in America is that not celebrated, you know, and if I'm, and if I'm wanting to further what it is I'm working toward, then like, when is the compromise too great? I just think that that's a really ongoing question. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and also something that I've been made more aware of in the past year or so is these large in- institutions that invite artists of color, trans artists, or, you know, minoritarian artists in general to do programming and not giving these same artists like solo exhibitions or retrospectives. They're asked to do this programming so that they can be used in the, the grant language. So it's, it's really, it gets really prickly in those moments because you want to be you want to celebrate these moments where someone like, well, I don't really want to use names, but you know, when a black artist gets asked to do something at a big name institution and it's like a public programming spot, then you realize that, oh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily offer like a, this same artist a six month exhibition in their space. So it's so. How do you how do you negotiate that? I mean, I don't know. I think that you have to. I guess it could be two pronged. You know, I mean, you don't want to just take what you can get because then you may never get what you deserve. You know, right? And, and also, like, you make it more difficult for people that come after you to request those types of opportunities if they know that they don't have to provide them to get the same benefit. So yeah. I guess it just, I guess it's, I, but then if you refuse all of them, then there's no black people in this space, you know? So, and what, which is, I guess, does more harm, you know? <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's really <laughs> tricky. I mean, and I think that like in recent years, there's been a, a more critical examination of these institutions and their histories and their supporters and their lack of inclusivity. And so I think that less and less you can get away with this kind of, um, ornamental engagement 
Uh And you really have to start giving more control over these institutions to uh, a wider group of people. But still, we're we're in like a transition time for sure. And it's unclear kind of like in your mind, what would it take to get uh, some of these major institutions to be committed to executing greater engagement with shows, with curator positions, with um, ongoing programming outside of February? You said, what would it take? Yeah, like, what do you think will will kind of, I mean, we seem to be opening up a little bit as a kind of the art world uh, investigates itself and how it's, it's treating people, but like, what would you need to see to feel like we're much further ahead than we are now? You know, I think the thing that makes it all tricky is that everyone's answer to that question would be different. I think, you know, it's because there isn't, like, a foundational, like, necessity other than, like, space and capital. Um, I think the right people, whoever those people are, need to be given the property and the manpower and the funds to be able to do programming that is at a standard of some uh, an institution like the Whitney, you know, um, that is centered around black programming. But, you know, I don't know if that is an answer or if that would even happen. It's almost like a, it's almost like a pipe dream, but at the same time, that's also like very separatist. I don't think, it would take another organization to be like statedly a black organization to do the same thing that a non-black organization is doing in order for it to work. I think, I think it, it means a lot of people who are in power stepping down from their positions and allowing other people to fill their spaces other people being people of color. You know, we have to put people of color in positions of power. And that's something that, you know, we all know, we all, we've all been hearing that over and over again. But I think that is the thing that terrifies a lot of people. We need, we need people of color and black people and other minoritarian folks to have positions of power. They need to be directors of institutions, they need to be presidents, they need to be CEOs, they need to be CFOs. That is what needs to happen. And it can't be just them, it needs to be a mixture of people so that the conversation is equitable and that it's inclusive. And we really need to we really need to disambiguate what it means to be equitable, what it means for things to be truly diverse, what it means for things to be truly accessible and accessible to whom. And it's not just like people of color. Like we have to get into the able-bodied folks. We have to get into language. We have to get into um, not just you know race. We have to get into sexuality. We have to, it's, gender it's, identity. We have to all, all of that. Of the all of it. Well, I just and see people. You know, it's like it's like where do we start? <laughs> it's like you have to, you know, you just have to start somewhere. And I think, you know, disambiguating all of that is a really important step and making sure people, there's clarity around these terms and they're not just used as, you know, flags, you know, that people are waving to 
claim that they're doing something that they are actually enacting. And what kind of co- I mean, obviously, like as someone who's like gender nonconforming and who uh, has established kind of these collective spaces. I mean, one of the things I think that has been really true recently, and maybe it's like one of very, very few silver linings of Trump is that partnerships that weren't being formed before, you know, between women and between black people and between the Muslim community and between LGBT organizations and immigrants, you know, like it's all, like, we're all dealing. It's like, it's not your day today. It'll be my day today. And then it'll be your day tomorrow. And then that person's day the next day. And then my day again today. And so I think that there has been an establishment of like, there's been at least a little bit of inroad making, uh, to find common ground between these aggrieved and kind of oppressed groups. Do you see that happening in, in kind of spaces that you occupy? And, and, you know, is that something you think is how necessary are those partnerships to topple kind of the worldview of some of these institutions? I think it's extremely necessary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't even think that it's a that, that there's a question that you know more and more of these partnerships should be happening, you know, on all levels, organizations, in you know all sectors. Yeah, I mean that's it's an easy answer, really. Right, for sure, and I think that like, and because you you said something about where do we begin, I think that that kind of yeah. gets to that question is what we begin by is establishing like a new worldview where everyone kind of is on this the assumption is that like we're all equal and we're all like human dignity is at the center of this worldview, you know? And Mm -hmm. so if that is the shift that's being made, then you might not have to, you know, be as splintered in terms of what your demands are. You're really just saying like this, this institution or this industry needs to reflect who is in it. And it also needs to get everyone in it. Um, and I think that that is people are really resistant to that who've been used to being gatekeepers and who are used to kind of having their view valued over others. Uh, and it also, I think it's a good point you made about people have to give up their power. And that's probably mm-hmm. the most difficult thing for people to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, there's like, there's a dislocation that happens with people who are in power and when, when people who are in power are asked to give up that power. They, they become extremely internally dislocated because they don't they don't know how to establish themselves without their power. They don't know how to locate themselves in 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 an institution or you know in any kind of discourse without having that power. So, you know, I think maybe an easy prescription or a simpler prescription for that to repair that dislocation would be to do these partnerships to partner with someone so that they don't have to give up complete power, but they can share a little bit of it. You know, they can empower someone else while they, while still holding on to the power that they have. And that's still, that's also still problematic, but it's (laughs) a tiny, it's a tiny step. (laughs) Well, I think that we have to, yeah, I think the binary of I win, you lose, you win, I lose. Like that's just, no longer yeah. needs to be the way that things are framed. I think that you can have a fair amount of power while you can have more power by empowering others. 
you know, in some way. I think, sure. like, I mean, if that's your, if that's your end game, there's a, there's something to be said for someone who, you know, has a lot of influence, but uses it to uplift all types of people, you know, who then tie mm-hmm. their own success back to that person who helped them. Like, I, I just think that this kind of a, the, the, you know, the, I think it doesn't need to be a zero sum. Like everything I yeah. give you, I lose. Um, mm-hmm. You're, mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I that's, mean, no, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want us to get into a really like preachy <laughs> kind of. I don't want us to get into a preachy space. Um, but you know, I think it's really easy. People think that it's really that it's difficult to do. But even in my own practice, like, of course, I'm a I'm an individual artist, at least separate. That is separate from the black aesthetic. Um, but whenever I do a project, I collaborate with people. Like with my new work, I, I had a cinematographer, I had, you know, sound people, the gallery that I worked with, the preparators, like th- these are all people that can be paid and empowered. And it doesn't have to be like, look, this is my project. You're just helping me with my idea. You have to actually integrate people into helping you build your ideas with you, even as a single artist. And I think, you know, just changing the ways that you view a practice, a creative practice, at least my own, is, is a way that I can do that. And I'm not even someone who considers, who is considered to have power in the world. Um, but it's really important to me to disseminate whatever power I am given to other people. All right, everybody, we wanted to take a quick break to say, hey, we hope you're loving the show. And we want to know more about who you are and what you want to hear. It helps us continue to make great content that you love and it helps us attract advertisers so we can get paid to continue to make awesome content for you. Please go to sodapodcast.com slash survey to help us out. That's S-O-T-A podcast.com slash survey. Another amazing way we support the show is through our Patreon page. We've actually worked down the street from Patreon for the last six years and seen them go from an idea to a platform that has helped creators make over $300 million dollars. The thing we know from being in the art business is that selling art is hard, in part because it can be above someone's budget, or as a podcaster, you need 10,000 listeners before getting any of the ad agencies to talk to you. But that's not even always the best way to monetize. Patreon is a great way for you to connect with your fans and invite them to become members. So for any creators interested in learning more, you can actually apply to speak to a Patreon launch specialist by heading to patreon.com soda slash apply. That's patreon.com slash S-O-T-A slash apply. Thanks for checking us out and back to the show. So kind of getting into your practice, um, you're, you're, you say uh, in your work that you tackle the complexities of phenomenological blackness. Uh, can you can I just elaborate on what that means and looks like for the listeners? Uh, for me? <laughs> yeah. So the complexities of phenomenological blackness is when I say that I'm talking about the lived experiences of black beings. So what are the the contours and the textures and the the, the tactility that is associated with black beings? That is a that that's kind of the phenomenology part of it. Like what is the container and what are all of the parts that are in that container that is considered within blackness? Uh, and how do you define that container? 
there isn't a single definition. You know, I think that's, I don't, I think, I feel like the container for me is just, um, it's, it's full of questions, not answers. Mm. With all of my projects, I don't aim to give anyone any answers. It's all about me questioning my position within this container of blackness and other people's positions within and around it. So it's like what I said earlier, how, how, how do we and how can we escape the impositions of other people's imagination? Um, you know, even our own. So if we imagine that black being looks this one specific way, let me trouble that a little bit and say, well, what about when blackness looks like this? Mm. And by saying that, you know, and blackness can look like, you know, a, a, a compilation of things. It's like what I'm, what I'm focused on in my work is figuring out what blackness feels like, what it tastes like, what it smells like to people so that they can start to understand what it's like to live in a black body and how that is both extremely beautiful and pleasurable, but also highly discomfort, discomforting. Well, for instance, you know, I, I think that's a really, there's a lot to draw upon from that. You know, it's like, what is the lived experience of a black person and defined by, you know, what set of parameters or questions um, and frameworks? Um, that's something that's actually really interesting for black people to explore, let alone people who don't have that experience. Um, yeah. So I want to talk to you about, um, I want to talk about a couple of your, your works. Um, I'm especially uh, curious as a, as a, um, male identifying black person, uh, your noise plus thirst show where, you know, you basically allowed men to share the first realization they had of their blackness and their, and their maleness. Um, and kind of, how did you come up with this work and, and how did you find the subjects and kind of how did it impact them to go through that? Okay, so this is a, a part where I, you know, I give a lot of artist talks, and I'm and I always, I'm always hesitant to present this work because it's deeply personal, even though it doesn't present that way. Um, the the impetus behind that project came when I was giving um, uh, an artist lecture at the San Francisco Art Institute, which is where I teach right now, and. Basically, after the artist talk, I walked off campus. It's in North Beach in San Francisco. I walked off campus to this little market slash grocery store. And it was really cold outside. I think I had on the same clothes that I have on today even, hmm. which is like a long black jacket with a hood on it. And I have a canteen, like a clean canteen. I walk in and I ask this older woman behind the counter, if I could have hot water. So I'm having the hot water dispenser in the face and she is saying that they don't sell it. And so I said, oh, well, can I just, you know, pour it in it, pour it in my campaign. If you don't sell, if you don't sell it, then I'll just like take some, even though I don't, and I don't, I don't actually proceed to like take the water. I just kind of like motion towards it. And she screams at me and tells me to get out of the store. And I'm like, wait, are you are you refusing to sell this to me because I'm black? Like I was really having this like cognitive dissonant moment in the store because I had never experienced this before. 
Mm. And it's crazy because all of my work deals with, you know, this kind of this 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 friction. That the friction that black people experience out in the world with black and non black bodies. And how like we have to negotiate the friction the friction with language mostly. And in that moment, I was like, wow, I'm actually being refused service because I'm black. And so I walk out of the store. She follows me out of the store. She has a phone in her hand and she's calling the police. And she describes me to the police as a black man. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. Over some water. Over water. And she tells the police that a black man is stealing from her. So in that moment. What race was the woman, if you don't mind my asking? See, does that I, even matter? I don't know if it matters. I know she wasn't black. Okay. This is a like north. If you if you're familiar with San Francisco North Beach, it's kind of like a like an Italian neighborhood. She could have been Italian. She could have been like some other kind of Eastern European. Um, she could also have been, you know, from South America somewhere. I ha- I don't know, but she had a, a heavy accent. And she's kind of what I like to call a colored white. You know, I was like, but she was a colored white. <laughs> she, she was a little tan, um, not Nordic, uh, <laughs> non-Nordic and, white, <laughs> <laughs> non-Nordic. <laughs> and anyway, so she's describing me to the police as a black man. So I, I, I'm seeing my friends while this is happening also like recording her so that I can post it on social media because I can't believe that this is happening. And my friend says, you have to leave right now because if those police show up, they're probably either going to arrest you or worse. Or worse. And I had a, there was a moment where I was like, no, I want to stay here and tell the police. Like I'm, I'm a teacher. Like I was, I was just asking for water and they're like, are you stupid? If they, if the police show up and think that a black man is causing harm to this elderly whiteish woman, you're you're done. And so I leave. And they'll ask questions I, later. And they'll ask questions later. And so then that is what you know. It sent me into a deep, like, emotional spiral because I had never been in the, like I have never I had never faced that kind of danger before. It was a very direct kind of danger that I wasn't familiar with, especially identifying most of my life as a black woman. Right. And so then I started to look at like a lot of my friends who were around me who are, you know, cis black men. And I, I just wanted to like learn their experiences. And when they first realized they were black men in the world and when they first like how how young were you when you realized that you were a black man? Because that was, I mean, I, I, I'm 20, I was 28 at the time, and that was my first time realizing that to someone in the world, I was a black man. Well, and yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, I Tamir Rice learned at 12, it, you know? He said what? I said Tamir learned at 12. Like, sometimes it must be super early. I mean, he obviously was killed, but I, I would imagine that depending on who you are. Anyway, go on. I, I digress. But it's like, yeah, 28 is a long time to to wait for that experience and it's kind of fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so when I, so when I had this realization, I said, no, I have to ask all of these people because this is not just my story to tell. And that's, you know, it's kind of like a theme throughout my work too. I can't just talk about my 
my single vantage point. Um, I have to ask, I have to invite all these different voices into the work to give it more of a rich texture so that it's, so that the story is multi-layered and, and it presents blackness in a truer form. Like what are, how are, how are the different, how do the different forms of blackness present itself in the world, uh, through these different, you know, black men, um, I think I also realized at that moment there was like an ideological indictment of the ways that we don't pay attention to black violence and, you know, the, the, the toggle between black masculinity and black femininity as this, this like iconographic presence within that ideology is something that I was really mining for. Um, I wanted to know through these different black men, like how blackness, how their blackness and their maleness can exist in harmony or otherwise. Wow. And most of the time when I was collecting these stories, you know, obviously this complicated black sensibility unfolded. They said, you know, there, I was sitting in a classroom and, you know, I heard all of these, you know, I was six or, or, you know, however old, but I was in a classroom and I heard all these kids around me giggling and they were talking about, you know, black this, black that. And then that's when I realized that I was the only black person in the room. Hmm. You know, that, you know, that those are the kinds of stories or this, you know, one of them said, hey, I was walking down the street and I, I hear police sirens. And then the, the moment when your body like tenses because you think that they're coming for you. Wow. It's like those, you know, it, it's, there's, it's, it's, we're born with that, like, tension. We're born with this, like, aversion to police. We're born with this, like, this fear. We're, we're like, anticipating something when you're doing the most inane thing. That is that is what I understand black masculinity to be after collecting all of these stories. It's like at any moment, anything can happen to you. Well, I mean, in this case, we're talking about something something terrible could happen at any moment. You know, I feel like, and that's a that's a you know they say stay ready. I mean, that's born out of this acknowledgement that you really got to be uh, have your wits about you and you have to be. Uh, have your eyes open because if you, you, you look one way and the next time, you know, you look back and things have turned, uh, insane in a matter of seconds. I mean, you went in there to get some hot water and next thing you knew, the police were being called without making any motions of violence or rage or instability, just mm -hmm. blackness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and that, and like, there's people who are exhibiting even more worrisome behavior who, I mean, that's the thing that's that's bad is that when you realize these experiences that these people unveiled to you, it, you know, when they realized they were black, like none of them were good, right? It wasn't like when you realize you're black, you realize that like your blackness is a problem for people. And I guess a problem right. for yourself because you can't fix yeah. that, you know? So it's how do you, does you have work that kind of figures out repairing that or somehow filling in that negative feeling with something that can generate something positive? Like, how do you, mm -hmm. how do you kind of flip the switch and be like, actually my blackness is an asset and I love it and I wouldn't change it, you know, and whoever has a problem yeah. with it, that's, that's their problem, you know? Yeah. Well, there's a moment. Um, one of my friends in the, in the piece says it, I, 
if I if I woke up as a white person, I would probably kill myself. And so that in this really <laughs> twisted, like deep psychologically twisted way, it's like I know that I face all this violence, but I don't want to wake up and be white. You know, I don't want to wake up and be the oppressor. Mm. Well, and in this moment where there's there's like a there's this diatribe against masculinity in general, not just black masculinity. I I found that with this work, people were deeply uncomfortable having to confront a man's like body really up close, and that's the sort of like haptic sensorial part of my work that I'm really interested in. It's like when you see someone's lips up close and you can see the folds in the skin, you can see their hair follicles, and you can see water dripping down their body. Like, how does your body react to that? We're never really that close to someone unless we're intimate with them. And when you force intimacy on an audience, especially an intimacy with a black body, they have to then negotiate their their positions to it. Yeah, a it, lot of people told me that they were uncomfortable because they don't. And a lot of these people were non-black. They were like, you know, it was really hard for me, even though what I was hearing was really sad. It was difficult for me to watch because I don't have a great relationship to masculinity. And it's like, well, how? I know that that is the case right now, but that that doesn't mean that you can't have empathy because this person is identifies as a man or these people. There was a talk that I gave uh, a few years ago at um, this place called Southern Exposure in San Francisco, and it was on empathy and otherness. But I talked about this time where I was in France and I saw moonlight for the second time. And I was, you know, with friends who were white. They were, I think, mostly white women. And after the movie was over, we, I, I sat down with them and I had this conversation with them. Well, first of all, the movie was in French. Mm. So I was wondering, like, how that, that black syntax translated into French. That, like, black Southern American dialect, mm-hmm. hood dialect, even. It's like, what does the trap mean? <laughs> yeah, le trap. Like, how do you translate that? <laughs> What's the trap, you know? Um, anyway, so I had this conversation with them, and I said, you know, Chiron, would, if you saw him in the street, how would you treat him? And they were like, oh, I, I, I might be friends with him. And I'm like, no, really. Like, would you treat this person the same way that you would treat Zach? Mm. The answer, they, you know, they have to say no. Obviously not. Not without a lot of evidence about what kind a of person Chiron was. You know, that is going to have to be a lot of un- unraveling of assumptions to let that happen. And no one really has. Few people have time for that, or even enough contact. And for Chiron, what incentive does he have to unravel that for her? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that is interesting. Uh, I, you you spoke about something a little bit earlier that I, I want to get back to that the 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 gentleman who said that he would still rather be black that speaks to the kind of resilience of black people that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I kind of want to talk about what in your mind kind of having done a lot of this work and living where you live like kind of in your mind what does this black resilience look like you know and like kind of what opportunities do we have because of what we have to go through 
um, that others wouldn't. I mean, besides like then maybe a more enlightened perspective. Um, how do people challenge? How do people challenge channel that resilience in a helpful way? Hmm. I mean, I think black bodies in general, black folks have the capacity to hold a lot of anger. And I think in that in that statement, he had you, you could feel the anger in his voice. And I think it's the anger that we all hold collectively that gives us the energy to be resilient. Um, to be persistent. It's, and that anger, you know, it often materializes in other, in other things, you know, it, it materializes in, in our bodies and in, in psychological ways. Um, and a lot of the times we don't have the luxury, the time or the space to really like heal that mm-hmm. anger. Um, but because it, it does give us this strength and it, it gives us like a creative strength, an intellectual strength, and we all know it gives us some kind of bodily strength, otherwise black athletes wouldn't be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah, well, it, go on. And not to make it sound like magical or otherworldly because we're also just people. But it's like when, when you have experienced collectively as a people, when you have experienced like a certain amount of struggle and it's like, it's like we've received the highest amount of struggle that a body can receive without disintegrating, right? People have done everything imaginable to a body to try to kill, to, to a black body to try to break it down. But we have like we've survived that, and it's because of that long lineage of like strength and fighting that we are able to like do things and push ourselves in ways that other people can't. Like music, like black music, we can push our voices in ways that other folks can't because of that, the, the, the like deeply ingrained pain that maybe I don't, I haven't felt directly in my life. But it's like you have to, you're you're channeling something. From from years that you can't, you don't even know, like you don't even know where that came from, but you know that you can channel it. You know that your body has the ability to to act to give that aspect of pain and struggle. And I, uh, you know, similarly with any with any creative work or you know science, you know, you, you were able to ask questions because of our experience that no one else can even think to ask. We are, or kind of need to ask. Or uh, need to ask. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, you think literally just about the history of black people in this country. I mean, many people didn't make it here. So you're already kind of like the surviving descendant of people who were able to get through it, you know? So mm-hmm. when you talk about mm-hmm. genetics, you know, we talk about these genes that we possess as black people, it's, it's the, fit, the fittest of the fittest, Ultimately, the fittest of the fittest, yeah. you know, and so I mean, there's some pride in that, even if it's based in you know unimaginable sorrow and oppression of people. Um, and I think that's why I think for a lot of us who are tapping into that, it's important to 
do what we can to further this discussion because so many people have come before to make this moment possible for us. So I plan that, you know, maxing out is the name of the game uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Although we kind of have to like not do that anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, it shouldn't be, you know, true equality and freedom is about being able to do whatever you want, you know, Uh, and not feeling obligated to kind of take on the burdens of a whole society on your shoulders because you're black. Um, Right. But those of us who do have something to say about that, I think, feel very empowered by that. Um, and, I, you know, uh, before we get to kind of some closing remarks, I want to talk about your, um, this is really well-timed because you have a solo show that's opening up uh, this week on fe- February 15th, which actually uh, is my, was my mom's birthday. So oh, ex- wow. extra, extra meeting there, too. Um, Sweet. Uh, the show is called Between Beauty and Horror. I just kind of want to give you a moment to kind of talk about it and uh, kind of let us know what we should expect. Oh, boy. Where should I start? <laughs> well, I'm, for a long time, I've been working with the, the blackberry, um, the fruit. And I made this piece called Blackberry Pastor Ralph since me number one. And that was kind of exploring the, the, the phrase, the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. Mm. And the origins of that phrase. So I looked as far back as I could. And the earliest that I found was um, the book, The Black of the Berry. And in that book, God, why am I, I'm blanking right now on the name of the author. Because it's early and I have had no coffee. <laughs> Black of the Berry. It's okay. We'll look it up and uh, tell you. Okay. Well, no, sorry, that was going to be something that bothered me because I say his name all the time. I'll bet. Um, anyway, so the book that was published in 1924 by Wallace Simon, The Black of the Berry, was a story about colorism, basically, and a woman migrating to Harlem and discovering that her body was both being hypersexualized and desexualized. Uh, and then I started to wonder, like, because this phrase is so ubiquitous in pop culture, like, where it came from and how we still use it. Uh, and how it can both be like uplifting but damaging at the same time. And as someone who's like non-binary or gender non-conforming, be, I started to realize how it was used primarily toward Black women. Not not solely, but a lot of the times when the phrase is used. I mean, you think of the fam- famous Friday scene where the of woman course. is running, running running past them. And they're like, you know, the black is very sweeter than Miss Parker. I started to realize that I, I Miss Parker. I, <laughs> I started to realize that I didn't identify as a black bear. I wasn't that curvaceous, like a dark skinned black woman. And so I did a piece where a lot of these different bodies, you know, black, white, and everything in between were interacting. It was mostly black and white folks who were interacting with the blackberries and how the blackberry became this like product consumption and the you know folks were rubbing it all over their bodies they were eating it and the, the piece was in slow motion and then i had this song underneath it called fantasy negra by florence beatrice price and she was the first black woman to be recognized as a symphonic composer mm. and that song happened to come out the same year 1929 as wallace thurman's novel the black of the Berry. and i just thought wow this was it was very happenstance the way I like found this information, you know, in my research. 
and it just it just made me consider like or maybe not consider but ask like what is the ecogeography of blackness through this through the blackberry how can i how can i make a connection or some kind of relation to blackness with the blackberry as this plant this ecological thing this this thing that's considered a weed it's a perennial plant that grows in places where it's unwanted but it perseveres anyway like as much as people try to kill it the blackberry just keeps coming back and so i started to think about you know ways in which black sexuality black violence the abject is all comprised within this object this blackberry and so the piece between beauty and horror is a film it's an interactive film because all of my work is not just a video piece it's not just something that can be traditionally screened on a wall it's built out into some installation where i disrupt the architecture in some way and have some kind of object erected in the space that people have to navigate other bodies but they also are you know there is like um they are positioned or choreographed within the space so that there's this hyper surveillance going on so bodies watching bodies watching bodies is happening mm. um and so this this particular piece I built this aggregate space gallery is two, it's like a really long gallery. And so I built it into two long corridors, like hallways essentially. So, so one video is on one side of the space and the other video is on the other side of the space, but you can't see either video completely at the same time. You have to see one or the other. And as you walk between the spaces, there's a wall with reflective glass built into it so that you can see, you have to see yourself and the bodies walking back and forth between these spaces. And for me, this is this, it's this really like beautiful moment where you realize that everything in between beauty and horror is what blackness is. Mm. And that's just the structural representation in the, in the project. So the video piece is an enactment of a dream that I had where five black people are sitting and they're gathered together and they're laughing and you know they're doing what people do when they like kick it they're just hanging out and then all of a sudden they're kicking it and all of a sudden they all draw guns on each other and they all start to frantically point guns and their guns it's not like they're not actual guns they're handguns so it's like you know, what you do when your finger makes an L shape and you mm. point it at someone. That that's a, This is exactly as it happened in my dream. And then all of a sudden, one of the guns goes off, even though they're just finger guns. And I, I'm, I'm like watching this happen in my dream and all of them scoop up this body and they carry it into this like, like non-fate, basically. And that basic, it, it's, it's kind of what happened. It was, it was kind of a premonitory dream because I kind of experienced something similar to this where I had a, you know, a, a group of black people around me at one point. And because of the way the Bay Area is and the pressures that we're all under, it felt extremely competitive. And while we were performing support, for each other we were also competing with each other 
Mm. And I realized how damaging that was. And how there there isn't there really isn't a an easy prescription to fix that. There is there is no there is no reparative thing that can happen in order for us not to be and not to have to live under the pressure of surviving in the area. And so this is kind of what the string of this this piece is about. It's like how blackness imposed blackness on each other so much so that we hurt each other. And while we recognize that this thing is like extremely beautiful and it may be feeding people in a lot of like emotional ways that are that are good, it can also really deeply hurt us because we're all like who who can be blacker? Who can win the oppression Olympics? Hmm. Who's blacker? Who who who's having a harder time surviving? How can we use each other's blackness in a way that is that can be ultimately detrimental, just so that we can make it? And I realized that that's something that that was ha- that was happening, or that has been happening. And I don't think that this is a new thing. You know, the, there we saw a lot of like political black political movements self destruct for this same reason. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm at this point where I'm wondering how we can stop the pattern. Well, it's just, it just goes so deep. I mean, you, I mean, again, looking back at slave times, like that's, we were pitted against one another to survive the plantation. You know, I'm in, you're out, or, you know, I'm going to tell on you in order to kind of like gain some position over you. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, traces of that today even i think that again going back to this kind of idea of collectivizing and coalition building where the basis for the work and the basis for the community is we are in this together and we're going to help one another and we're not going to fall into the trap of oppressing one another in order to gain advancement you know i think that that's something that is really really powerful and you know potentially one of the only strategies i can imagine that would work really well because when we when we individualize people's success and make it so that in order you know the, the kind of framework we were discussing before where in order for me to win all y'all have to lose like that's what you end up with is a really kind of um what do you call internecine type of community and like mm-hmm. we, and we've seen how that does not work you know pretty well mm-hmm. so i'm hopeful that kind of the future is brighter, you know, for people like you and the work that you're displaying and, and creating and the communities that you're building and the collectives that you're empowering. So um, do you have any kind of final thoughts, Layla, that you'd like to, to share before we uh, conclude this wonderful episode? Um, well, if you are in the Bay Area, come out and see the show. There's also going to be a performance between me and Another queer black homie, Elena Gross, at the lab on March 8th. And we are releasing a book in conjunction with the show Between Beauty and Horror that sort of expounds on these same things. We both wrote essays. And because I'm into design and like visual language, it should be a really enjoyable read and an enjoyable performance for everyone, hopefully. 
Yes, so please catch that show, uh, Between Beauty and Horror. The opening is February 15th from 6 to 10 at the Aggregate Space Gallery. Um, Look it up. And it's open until March 23rd. Yes, Uh, it's open until March 23rd, and it's at 801 West Grand Avenue in Oakland. Um, Will be an excellent show. I will definitely be checking it out myself. well, Layla, this has been a really spirited and wonderful discussion. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to be on this program. Um, good luck with your upcoming show. I'm sure it will be uh, a wonderful success, and I really just appreciate you. I appreciate you, too. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, and then uh, we'll, we'll be back. Thanks. That was incredible. Thank you for joining me on this episode of State of the Art, Exploring the Black Creative. You can learn more about Layla Weefor by visiting her website at www.lelawefur.com. And if you're in the Bay Area, be sure to catch Layla's solo show. It opens tonight uh, at 6 o'clock. The show is called Between Beauty and Horror at the Aggregate Space Gallery in San Francisco. You can also follow her on Instagram at, at Spike Layla. Catch you guys next week.